on Textbooked. Hi, I'm Bethany Denton, and I'm one of the editors at Untextbooked. We're currently in our season break, but I'm here to share some of our favorite moments from season two. Now, if this is your first time listening, welcome. Untextbooked is a podcast where our team of producers interview historians and scholars about how history informs the world today. Most of our producers are first-time interviewers. Untextbook got its start in 2020, in the height of COVID lockdowns and Black Lives Matter protests. We had a lot of urgency motivating us then, and we still do. But our first season was kind of an experiment, figuring out what Untextbook could be. Coming back for a season two really clarified for us what our podcast could do, what we could do. Our goal is to give a platform to young people to ask real questions about how we got where we are. Questions like, is the planet overpopulated? Did anyone actually win the Cold War? Why are so many American cities still racially segregated? Today, school districts across America are banning books and topics deemed too controversial. So we think it's more important than ever to give you access to real history that you might not get in school. We have big plans for the future of this show, and we hope you'll join us for season three. So subscribe, tell your friends, and follow us on social media at Untextbooked. And in the meantime, here are a handful of clips from season two that still, months later, are kind of rattling around in my head in a good way. I'll start with this clip from an episode called, Is Every Presidency Doomed to Fail?, The episode asks why Americans are becoming increasingly dissatisfied with their presidents. And no, it's not because of politics or character flaws. Historian Jeremy Surrey thinks that, over the years, the executive branch has bloated in responsibility and expectations to the point that every president since George Washington has, more or less, been set up to fail. Here's producer Lap Nguyen. So what was the executive branch as envisioned by the founders, and how well did George Washington carry out that vision? That's the perfect question to start with, Lap. The founders believed in a government that had three branches, of course, a legislative, an executive, and a judicial branch. They did believe the legislative branch should be the place where most policy is made. The executive branch was not to play a day-to-day policy-making role for them. They saw the executive branch more as playing the role of applying the law, executing the law, as written by Congress. And with very few exceptions, the president was to have a sometime veto power if he wished. It was a much more limited role for the executive than we see today. The founders did not want presidents to be part of a party. They didn't want them to be Federalists or Jeffersonians or Democrats or Whigs or Republicans. They wanted the president to really represent everyone in the way that perhaps, at least mythologically, a father figure stands above the different cousins who might be arguing within a family, the person who can bring them together and say, look, we're all one family. We have to get along. Here are some common issues. That's exactly what they wanted the president to do. And that's what Washington excelled at. George Washington, he was mainly seen as a father figure in the sense of being above party. And he was to be the person who brought people together. Not everyone agreed with Washington on all issues. But almost everyone recognized that Washington had the interests of a larger United States in mind. 
Uh, he was one of the few Southerners from Virginia that Northerners could identify with. And, and so he played that role, that fatherly role of bringing the cousins, the factions, the states together. That's precisely what they wanted the president to do. You can listen to the full interview on the Untextbooked episode called Is Every Presidency Doomed to Fail? We did the bulk of our recording for season two in July and August of 2021. It coincided with the U.S. military pulling out of Afghanistan. For most of our team, the United States had been occupying Afghanistan for their entire lives, almost two decades. And a few of our producers wanted to understand what was happening and why it was important. This clip you're about to hear is from an interview with historian Alex Lubin, who wrote the book Never Ending War on Terror. Here's producer Ruba Memon. The next question I wanted to ask you about was your title, The Never Ending War on Terror. Do you think this war will eventually end or will it evolve and continue? I guess I would say two things. I, um, I wrote this book for students that I teach in college who are in their 20s or their late teens and 20s, many of whom were raised in the culture of the war on terror and haven't really known a history before the war on terror. And I think it's important for listeners to know that those of us who were raised in the Cold War, in the era of the Cold War, right, for us, the terrorists we were taught to fear in our schools and in our popular culture was communism. That was the evil empire. And communists could be the Soviet Union and the Russians abroad. It could be the Sandinistas. It could be uh, Latin American popular uprisings, but it could also be your neighbor, right, who led a secret life and could have been a communist. In the 1950s, it could have been your Jewish neighbors who were accused of being communists, or it could have been filmmakers who were accused of portraying communist propaganda, or it could have been gay and lesbian people who were seen to be living hidden lives in the 1950s and 60s, and therefore maybe they were communists. And so as I wrote the book about the war on terror, I thought to the ways in which war on terror culture is somehow similar, though it uses new language and new rationales, as the Cold War. And in that way, what are the things that have become normative in the name of fighting a war? And are those things that we should question? That was an excerpt from our episode called, Can the War on Terror Ever Truly End? This next clip is about a question that untextbook producer Oliver Wang has been wondering about ever since he was young. Is our planet overpopulated? He had a personal connection to this question since members of his family grew up under China's restrictive population control policies. Oliver interviewed the historian Matthew Connolly, who thinks that the topic of world population can't really be reduced down to such a simple question. Here's producer Oliver Wang. The population crisis has been a point of contention for a long time now. A lot of researchers have different arguments on just how much the world can sustain, how many people the world can sustain. And so just based on your professional opinion in this field, do you believe that the world was, is, or ever will be at a point where it's considered overpopulated? Well, it really depends on you know, how it is that those billions of people choose to live. Um, the people you know, who I think you know, are the most expert in these questions 
are ones who will tell you that the number of people in the world is really just part of the equation. Um, that you have to also look at, you know, where these people live, how they're living, because, you know, what worries you are things like the production of greenhouse gas emissions um, or the consumption of finite resources. Then you really ought to be focused on the people who are producing the most greenhouse gases and consuming the most resources. But unfortunately, at least for most of you know, the history of the last hundred years, and people have had these kinds of worries for a really long time, for most of that time, people instead tended to look at poor people. Um, and they thought that, in fact, you know, the solution to the world's population problem was just to get poor people to stop having so many children. So, you know, the point I would make is that with fertility rates already declining around the world, um, and yet and still, you know, we see not nearly enough of a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. I am not convinced that trying to control world population is really going to provide the solution to this problem. I would argue that the real problem here, it's about consumption patterns, right? And how people understand the good life. One of the big ironies in the history of family planning is that the way that they tried to convince people to have smaller families was by telling them that if they had fewer children, they could have more stuff. <laughs> you know, so they were telling people for generations that by choosing to have small families, they could have transistor radios and televisions and color televisions, automobiles and second homes and so on. So if that's the message that they were using to try to convince people to have smaller families, how is it we can now turn around and tell them that they should have smaller families in order to save the planet? You can listen to the full interview on our episode called, Does Population Control Work? So one of my favorite things about working on this show is that our producers have a lot of freedom in the topics they cover. Each episode starts from a place of genuine curiosity. And sometimes the topics can be quite personal, like our producer Gavin Scott, who has family members that were required to attend Native American boarding schools when they were growing up. Gavin interviewed historian Brenda Child, who compiled letters written by students who attended these schools. Here's producer Gavin Scott. So looking back at those boarding schools and what the United States had in mind, did boarding schools work as intended? I guess I would say yes and no. Um, there were lots of ways that students found they could resist the authority of the institution. You know, they were powerless in government boarding schools, but they could still be annoying. They could have food fights. They could drive the adults crazy. And so I think what I always like to keep in mind is that it was pretty hard to make victims of Native children, <laughs> right? Sometimes they were. Sometimes they were beaten. Sometimes they were abused. That surely is part of boarding school history. But on the other hand, it was, it was difficult because the kids themselves were so spirited. Uh, and so I always you know, I choose the, the kind of narrative of resistance and resilience because there were so many examples of it in the boarding school record. In that sense, I think that the boarding schools didn't beat Indians into submission, right? Even children were not very submissive. Now, in terms of success from the federal government's perspective, I think they were successful in kind of accomplishing 
the goals of the era because boarding schools were the place to re-educate Indians for a new future where they would no longer need a tribal homeland as did their parents or their grandparents. That was an excerpt from the episode called Why Were Native American Kids Required to Attend Boarding Schools? That episode also has an interview with Gavin's great-aunt, who attended two Native American boarding schools in the 1940s and 50s. Thank you for listening. This is such a small sample of the phenomenal work that we've done this season, and I hope this episode inspires you to go back and take a listen. There are links to the full interviews of each clip you heard in this episode's description. Untextbooked is produced by young people who are curious about the world and inspired to learn history in a new way. We're looking for more producers to join our team for season three. If you're under the age of 22, live in the United States, and like what we do, then go to untextbook.com apply and fill out the form. And if you have money and you'd like to help us make Untextbooked even better, go to untextbook.com support. Untextbooked is edited by me, Bethany Denton, with help from Jeff Emptman. Our executive producer is Fernanda Rain. Music by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbooked is a project of History Collab, which is an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. <laughs>